Welcome to NextCast, a podcast about teaching and learning at Humber College. My name is Nathan Whitlock, an editor at Humber Press. This is the second of our best of episodes, consisting of great moments from the first season of NextCast. Our first all-new episode will be out Tuesday, September 18th. In our first clip, former Humber student and current Humber employee Sarah Nyman talks about the importance of doing real-world-style learning projects. The ability to interact with a live client who is giving us the, the, uh, like the type of feedback that we would be given if we were ourselves working on a real-life project and um, just going through that whole process, gaining those transferable skills that we can use in the future, um, it was definitely, it made everything worth it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And sure. it's not always, I mean, I'm not telling tales out of school here, but it's not always a positive experience in the sense of... <laughs> Uh, when you're dealing with a real client, mm-hmm. they have they can be challenging because sure. they have very specific needs. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you were doing this only theoretically mm-hmm. or with a partner in your class, mm-hmm. it would always feel like oh we're we're I'm only going to get good feedback. I'm only going to get positive feedback. I'm only going to get supported, you know, mm-hmm. fully. Definitely. Whereas a live client might say yep. that's not what I need. I need yep. something completely different. This is wrong. Yeah, um, I think an assignment that might be created. Um, solely internally for the purposes of maybe demonstrating various skills um, would give you all the information that you need transparently. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you're interacting with a real client, they might think they know what they need they or they don't disclose certain information that you need. And so you have to be able to adapt to that and kind of figure out how to work your way through it. The analogy I always I always think of uh, in these situations is people I know who 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 play music mm-hmm. uh, and I play a bit of music but there's a very different thing when you're playing in your bedroom or in your basement and then you go to play with other people mm-hmm. and all these things you you were sure you mastered mm-hmm. suddenly exactly. you get revealed all of your you know vulnerabilities and all Definitely. your blind spots and the things you kind of skipped over so yeah. Dealing with actual yep. real-world situations mm-hmm. show you where those blind spots exactly. are. Exactly, and yeah. seeing how other people view the exact same subject in so many different ways kind of widens your view on everything. Next up, media studies professor Anne Zbitnu shows us a game that she plays in the classroom. Okay, so okay, Nathan... So my your, first step? Your first step, close your eyes. Okay, I'm closing my eyes. Okay. Then you're going to pick up the piece of paper, mm-hmm. and you're going to fold it in half. All right. And don't worry if it's even. Don't worry if the edges are sharp. That's okay. Then, it excellent. It looks great. Um, you keep eyes your eyes still shut. Closed? Eyes okay. still closed. So I'd like you to tear off the top right corner. The top right corner. Yes. Here we got left and right, so we'll see how it goes. Good. Gone. Okay. Fold it in half again. Got Keep it. Keep your eyes closed. Got it. Tear off the bottom left corner. Will this be a snowflake at the end of it? Maybe. Or, or, or uh, gingerbread men all attached holding <laughs> hands. Um, so then you're going to fold it in half one more time. Got it. I'm doing it right now. You are. Looks good. Listener at home. Yeah. And then tear off the top left corner. It'll be a bit of a challenge. Now it's thicker, but tear what you can I'm off. extraordinarily strong. So. Yeah, I know you are. Oh, look at that. Amazing. Okay. So now you can open your eyes and okay. you can unfold your paper. And it is a beautiful snowflake. Well, kind of a snowflake. So what 
there's a big hole in the middle, and then there's, it looks like you chewed the outside it edge does. of it. Yeah. So, is this what, a sort of a Rorschach thing? It is, and now <laughs> I'm going to leave because no. <laughs> so what, what happens is, so everyone opens up their paper, and uh -huh. then, okay, everybody hold it up. And when people hold it up, they all look different because... So, which is really interesting. So they go, hey, mine's got two holes. Mine's ripped there. <clears throat> mine's folded this way. So I say to everybody, what, what happened? What, you all listened to the same directions. You all had your eyes closed. What happened? And the answer is we're all different people. And so even though we heard the same directions, you know, you're folding it maybe lengthwise. I'm folding it the other way. You've torn a big piece off. So someone else tore a little piece off. You might not know your left from your right. So... They all look different. So the point being, okay, here we are. We're all in the same room. We're doing the same class. You're different. You're all going to see things differently. I spoke with Cheryl Francis Nurse about the new partnership she helped develop with the Toronto chapter of the Project Management Institute. I mean, this particular initiative will afford our students many, many benefits. You just certainly um, touched on one where they're engaging with practitioners from industry. They're seeing themselves and the people that they'll be networking with, engaging with, I mean, based on our new relationship or formalized relationship with PMI Toronto. So if I look at some additional benefits to our students, yes, we're strengthening relationships, but the strengthening of relationships means that the students will have access to such a vast pool of project managers. They will have the ability to, I mean, seek advice, coaching, mentoring as they, as they transition from being a student to a professional. They will have access to capstone sponsors. They will have access to various networking opportunities, many of which will be hosted here at Humber, which is why it's so important to have our uh, program and certainly um, to launch our own student community because this means that they're also going to be coming to us and engaging right here at the North Campus with our students. It also means that our students will have volunteer opportunities. There's also the potential for internships. And I must say that when we initiated this project last year around springtime, the PMI invited our students to compete for internships under a special um, outreach program that they were piloting. Two of our students got, those op got the opportunities. They were supposed to be three-month internships. In one case, this turned out to be a, a nine-month engagement. Oh, wow. Both students were there um, last semester, last week, and they essentially said, we have had an opportunity to jumpstart our career. We'll be forever grateful for the opportunity afforded us by Humber, the PMI Toronto, and the employer. So already we are seeing those results. And we're just starting the journey. And we are confident that we will see many opportunities evolve from this. School of Media Studies Program Coordinator Bernie Manette spoke with NextCast about a common first year for students. So the idea is that we will teach, you know, the, the basic skills across different programs and bring all the students together and sort of let them um, experience these things, uh, you know, not based on a program, but more based on the subject matter. And I believe the business school has been doing something similar with theirs as well. And so it was hard, you know, um, you know, different programs feel strongly that, you know, we're teaching something according to the needs of our discipline. 
But we're also trying to look at this and say, well, how do we just, you know, what are the core things that people need to do? And then, you know, later on in a program, we can say, okay, this is what you need to know about this particular topic that's specific to what we do. And so, you know, that's been, you know, it's been interesting. It's been interesting from a, you know, curriculum development point of view. It's been interesting from a scheduling point of view. It's been interesting from, you know, remediation for students who might not do very well or students who need accommodation. And, but, you know, we go back to my sort of my fundamental position on something like this is, you know, why don't we just try it and see what happens, <laughs> right? In the next clip, Colin Flint explains how student perceptions of internships change before and after their work-study placements. Before they went in, the students didn't really think that having a mentor when they got to the agencies was that important. But once they'd been there, that really changed. It was 26% said it was absolutely essential before. It went up to 44%. Thought it was absolutely essential to have a mentor. And if you included people who thought it was very important, that's 91% of people thought it was really important or essential to have a mentor. Why do you think that is? Why do you think, uh, if, even if you were just to guess, why do you think the numbers were so low going in and then, and then spiked once they'd gone through the experience? I think it's... it's when they find themselves in the situations, and, and a lot of the time they don't know what to do, we do our best to kind of train them and give them all the knowledge, but they're still, it's kind of, they're going to find things uh, that they, have, they don't know how to handle. And having someone they can go and talk to and, and help them, or if they're just getting stressed out by stuff, to, to, to find someone to talk to who isn't the person who's evaluating their performance. I think they found find incredibly useful, so and someone to model their behaviour off all those kind of things. Um, I, I think they think, thought of it very much as I'll go in there, do the job, and everything will work out fine. Right, right. And uh, so I think that that was a bit, a little bit of a surprise to them. Next, Leela Kelleher explains how the flipped lab and workshop model maximizes the time instructors spend with students. A flipped classroom, it's, 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 pretty, it's pretty cool right now, uh, flipping your classroom. Um, so what it, what it means is um, students are responsible for learning um, the material that traditionally would have been taught in lecture time. So if you can imagine a big lecture theater, you know, you'd have some professor lecturing to you about some theories and background information on a topic. Uh, you might have done some little bit of reading beforehand, but basically you're getting all of that information in the lecture. Um, in a flipped classroom model, um, uh, the student is responsible for essentially learning those um, theoretical basics outside of the classroom so that when they come to the class, um, they're able to engage at a deeper level with the material and the professor can really use their expertise at that higher level um, to engage with the students and with the material rather than just teaching kind of basic 101 level um, theory on whatever subject it is. So they're prepared. They've they've gotten the you know the hard content they need, the, the the information they need. But now they're prepared to start applying it in class and and go a little further with that. In other words, absolutely, yeah. So um, oftentimes um, when the flipped classroom model is used, um, it's usually using a little bit more um, 
technology and media to do it. So oftentimes there might be videos that students need to watch. They might need to do modules on um, their classroom management system. Um, so Blackboard, for example, they might need to watch videos, maybe answer a little quiz to test their mastery, um, as opposed to just, you know, reading through some some readings, which, you know, as we know, some people do and some people don't. So um, it's it's supposed to be a little bit more engaging and then, then the students can actually gain a higher level of mastery of that material um, because uh, they're actually um, using that classroom time to really um, push those ideas and, um, and get, get a fuller understanding. Helena Moncrief joined NextCast to discuss her new book from ECW Press, The Fruitful City. One of my mentors said, never ask what a book is about, but rather ask what it will do. And I really like that concept because it does spring into teaching as well. But this is a book that makes you look at fruit trees that grow in our cities and wonder where they came from, who planted them, and why it is that we're not looking at them anymore or picking them. And so many of us no longer know whether a fruit is okay to eat anymore. So we've become so food illiterate, and in this case I'm looking at the fruit, so I'll say fruit illiterate, that we don't recognize that those uh, tie-dye sidewalks can lead us to a bounty of mulberries that are just above our heads, easy to be picked and to be included in a, in a menu. And this seems like a subject, I mean, the idea of, of fruit, food and fruit being all around us um, and where to find it and, and, and how to spot it. It seems like an idea that's literally sitting right there in, in plain view. It just needed somebody to, to, to pluck it. Well, well, it's that's the whole thing. Is it's so simple? It's um, it's something that's right there, and I think um, we are always looking for the next new thing, something big to be discovered, some new way of doing things. And if you look at something like the hundred mile diet, which couldn't be any simpler, that started a movement. This is the same kind of idea. This is a food that's growing in our neighborhoods, in our cities. You don't have to get in a car to go to a farm to pick your own. It's right there. It seems too simple. It seems a little quaint, perhaps, or old-fashioned. But uh, there are so many trees in our cities that are growing food that can easily be included on our tables without requiring any kind of change in agriculture practices. You don't need a new um, uh, form of botany. You don't need a degree in it. All you need to do is look up and see what's there and say, I'm going to use what I have. In our final clip, program coordinator Christine McCaw shares insights she gained as a result of her Teaching Innovation Fund research project, where she studied how teaching spaces affect student learning. I had experience um, in my, my corporate life seeing uh, engagement levels with different room layouts. And so I kind of had an inkling that it was going to have an effect. But I need to be honest, Nathan, I was surprised. Mm -hmm. uh, the biggest thing that, that surprised me was as a professor, when you go in at the beginning of a semester to your classes, you kind of get a vibe. Is this kind of a turned on class? Is this kind of a, I'm going to have to work a little harder? And uh, I remember when I started this research study, I went back to Heidi at the CTL and I said, Heidi, oh, geez, my really turned on class is in the traditional classroom. I'm really kind of nervous how these <laughs> results are going to shake out. And uh it was a, it was unbelievable as of the person in the research study 
to see the change in the two classes uh, over the semester. Wow. Yeah. So they definitely like made that shift in, in, in engagement. Yeah, we um, we measured lots of things in the study. We measured attendance levels. We measured um, whether you know uh, students feeling about being engaged with their peers. Did they have a better relationship with their professor? And we measured this at the beginning of the semester and at the end of the semester. We asked questions like, did did you contribute an idea in class? Did you um, ask a question of your peers? Uh, so and and uh, what we found was. Um, I was really surprised. What we found was that it was definitely in the hives. There was more peer-to-peer learning, stronger feeling of connection with the professor, um, more more contributions and ideas in class, more percentage of time students were on task. And at the very end of the class, we also looked at the overall class average, and um, it was it was seven percent higher in the hive. Nextcast is produced by Humber Press and the Creative Productions team at the Centre for Teaching and Learning. This episode was edited by Kristen Valois. Special thanks to Santino Pinozzo and Eileen DeCorsi. To suggest stories for future episodes of Nextcast or to just let us know what you think, email HumberPress, all one word, at humber.ca. That's humberpress at humber.ca. Thanks, and see you next time. That's still not a